Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. It's breakfast somewhere, so eat up. Welcome to Breakfast with Vinny. Food for thought. Easy, easy, take it easy. Okay, settle down, everybody, settle down. <laughs> hey, today, um, welcome. Uh, today's a special one for me once again. Um, I have the great privilege of um, having as a special guest here on the show uh, a dear old friend of mine who is a, also a mentor of mine and my teacher, my drum instructor at the Berklee School of Music. Um, he's an esteemed instructor and performer, um, you know, a real saint of the drums. Uh, a, a storehouse of knowledge, um, a prolific author uh, who has pioneered uh, the linear drumming system, uh, among other things. He's performed with so many people. I remember when I was a student at Berkeley, he was playing then with Pat Metheny and Jocko Pastorius, and I was dumbfounded. Um, and equally dumbfounded when he accepted me as a student, a mere student, and I saw what it was that he was doing. Um, he was very, very much responsible for shaping me uh, as a drummer uh, and as a musician. Today, please welcome Gary Chafee. Gary, welcome to Breakfast yeah. with Vinny. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this just to, uh, you know, continue what you were saying. Vinny and I have known each other for a long time in various combinations. And uh, I've always considered him to be one of the greatest students I ever had. And he said something in his little intro there where he was talking about when he first saw me. And I forget what he, exactly you said to me, but it was something like, I got what he was doing or I was, you know, something like that because it was obvious that he knew the things that I was talking about. So Vinny, I have a question for you. That's okay. okay. Certainly. Who did you study with before me? Cause I can't imagine you were already that rhythmically proficient when I ran into you, but maybe you were, maybe you did it yourself. Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, I came from my little rural southwestern Pennsylvania area, and I I studied a lot. I mean, I, I was really, really geeky and into studying. So I studied with a lot of different people. Um, there was um, there was a local guy in Pennsylvania that, in you know, in my little town that a lot of us uh, drummers went to. His name was Bill Crockett, and he was really into Wilcoxon and rudiments and... Um, yeah, and you know, I, I I was modeling myself after the people of the day, Frank Arsenault and these people that were rudimental drummers and would practice in front of the mirror and had one of the TikTok wind up metronomes and you know marched in the band and practiced incessantly, um, and um, you know was in the stage band and and at that time we had a very good music program, uh, and there were people involved. Uh, the band director, and then their sort of assistant band directors and arrangers. They were real jazz heads, um, mm. you know. And and so so one of them s said, "Oh, this this kid's talented. I'm gonna mentor him." And you know, he goes, "I want you to study with uh, this guy at Carnegie Mellon. I'm gonna take you down to meet this guy. His name's Joey Chinaki. Uh, he'll he'll teach you how to be a be you know a good big band drummer." He's actually a voice major, but he's a great drummer. And, and you know, I went to Carnegie Mellon. Then I went to these, what, what they were called, fine arts music camps, three years in a row at West Virginia University when I was in junior high school. Uh, and each time I went there, I got college credit. So I had three semesters worth of credit at WVU in Morgantown. And at that time, the percussion teacher was a guy called Phil Faini, who then later became the dean of the school. And Phil took a sabbatical uh, and came back after two years, and he had all these African percussion instruments. So he was teaching us African percussion, you know, like microtonal xylophones and 
It was the first time I'd ever heard of a hemiola, you know. And so I was studying and and with these different people, and I, you know, I bought all these drum books and would was sort of really just immersing myself in getting as much information as I could, cerebral information, theoretical knowledge, reading, music notation. And I got exposed to, um, you know, some various rhythmic elements from also at that time, you know, was when I was in junior high, I, I was listening to, you know, the mothers of invention and Frank Zappa and, you know, just taking all of that in. But, but then I discovered this piece called ionization. And when I heard ionization, you know, my eyes lit up and, and I thought, I want to know what all this stuff is. So I started absorbing. Hmm? I knew there was something. (laughs) Right. So when you came, you were just so much different. So I knew there had to be a spark someplace along the way where you went talking about ionization. Do you know how many people between you and me know even what that piece is or who wrote it or what it's about? But it made a big impression. And I knew it had to be something like that. I didn't really have that myself. I never got any kind of specific knowledge or training rhythmically. It was all the same shit. It was rudiments. It was the Wilcoxon book, the Nard book. You know, that's the stuff that. Sure. Yeah. So, 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 well, I'm going to ask you then. You just gave me a springboard, but I'm going to finish me. I'm almost done with me since you asked me, but, but I did the same thing to Anthony Cerrone, all these things, reading books. And I just immersed myself. And then I started looking for other things that had those kinds of rhythmic things. Pete Magadini, I got exposed to Pete Magadini and that was, that was got me off and running as well. So by the time I got to Berkeley, I already had, I had amassed some knowledge, some rhythmic knowledge and ability. Um, you know, so so I was sort of prepared in a way that that I already, you know, I just wanted to develop it and and kind of just expand and 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 be around people, you know, playing different kinds of music and yeah, just expand myself. But the question is, is that if that's if you didn't have anywhere that you got it from, how the hell did you develop all that stuff? I got it in orchestral music. When I went to Potsdam, went to college and played in an orchestra, they played a lot of contemporary music. And it was, a, I remember going to my, my percussion ensemble teacher and we were playing uh, a piece called Amores. And uh, who was it by, I forget, sorry. But anyways, it had two movements of prepared piano. Now, I never heard a prepared piano before. It was so cool. (laughs) And then the second and the third movements were for percussion quartet. So the very first quartet, within three or four measures, there were 11s and 7s and 5s. I had no idea. So I went to my teacher and I said, I have no idea how to play this, how to count it. He didn't have much of an idea either, but I think together the two of us kind of figured out, you know, things that would work to be able to do it. And I just fell in love with it. And I kept wanting to find more of that stuff. So, yeah, there were certain, some books around that had, you know, some of that in, but not really that much. You know, Vinny, and by the way, one thing that we never did together there is one incredibly difficult rhythmic piece. I don't know if you know it. It's called Knocking Piece by Ben Johnston. It is the hardest rhythmic piece ever written. It's uh, The thing about it, you're playing inside a piano, two guys with mallets, and every measure is a metric modulation. So you're okay. overlapping. You measure, modulate the first measure. I do it the second measure. But it's always different. It's coming off different rhythms. 
I spent a month with a guy and we barely got through the first page. It's 15 pages long. Oh, so man. if you ever have a chance, just just look it up, Knocking Piece. I think there's maybe a couple of versions of it. Okay. So you were going to say, if there's a chance. So one thing we never got to do together. So the question is, how could we do this, right? <laughs> oh, I couldn't play it. I yeah, oh, sure you could. No, no, no. You don't know the piece. I do. <laughs> okay. I'm Anyways, I know that you could do it. And so you're going to have to find somebody else to do it with. But I'm saying if you want a really interesting, unbelievable piece, I mean, it's, you know, it's not a lot of different sounds. It's just inside the piano. It's just playing with mallets. So there's not a whole lot of dynamics. I don't remember if there are any dynamics written in it, but. That's a piece you want to check out. Please. Okay. I, I love the fact that if it doesn't sound like there's a metric modulation every bar, that the listener is un blissfully unaware of it, while the performers are basically, you know, chewing their nails to the bone, you know. Right. That's the way that shit works, you know. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Right. It's so hard and people in the audience are saying, oh. Oh, yeah. I could do that. What was that was nothing. But what they don't realize was I was conceived that's a great a great uh, um, example and exercise of of just perception. You know what I mean? Uh, it really is. It's that's kind of a mind numbing thing. So so you had to figure it out for yourself, and um, and and so by the time you you started teaching at Berkeley, because I remember when I got there, and it was seventy four seventy five, you you had basically prepared the entire curriculum for the school and right. and 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 your methodology was nascent then it was in its infancy it was you know loose leaf it wasn't even in book form yet and yeah. you, and so you know i was sort of like one of the guinea pigs many of us because we were on the ground floor of that stuff and here here we are being exposed to this and thinking what's that you know that's that's well you, do you remember the time that i took you to ed caspic's office mm. you had come in and i had told you the week before because you obviously knew about this i said come back with a couple of pieces that demonstrate what how you think about this stuff i wrote some stuff for, yeah for you came back with some very hard rhythmic pieces he said, oh this one goes something like this and then, oh, well, this other one goes something like this. And so I couldn't believe it. So I said, wait a minute. We're, we walked over to Ed Caspic, who is the strongest rhythmicist I ever met. And I said, Ed, you're not going to believe this. And then you showed him the pieces and then you played it. And he flipped out, too. It was very interesting that you had attained that kind of level at that age. Yeah, I think, well, well, thank you. I mean, you know, to me, it was just sort of, it just kind of came out and it was just part of how I thought. And um, that's the only way it could have happened. You know, in the imagination, I, I, you know, yeah, I guess just the way that I thought and, and the kind of imagination that I had. And so nobody was telling me, well, you can't do this or write this because, yeah. you know, nobody stifled me. I just sort of, could let my imagination run wild and yeah. um I, yeah just just be yourself you know what i mean and you you always fostered that and just sort of gave me the stuff to do and and i'd come in and and you 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 had de defended me you know some some i remember i came into once you said something that blew my mind and i'm not saying this to toot my own horn by any means believe me but but i was in a i came into a lesson and you know you you put something in front of me and it was a lesson that that was i should have prepared from the week before and so i sat down and played it and there was another student in the room and i sat down and played and i made one mistake and the, the guy said well maybe you should have practiced it and you turned around and said to him vinnie doesn't need to practice and i was like <laughs> Wow. That's right. Pardon? That's right. I just remember that, you know, and 
you you know, you ran to my defense. So, I mean, thanks for doing that. I mean, not that I would encourage any teacher to give a student a pass for not practicing, but I guess you were trying to tell him that, you know, don't be so quick to judge. And uh, yeah, I mean, if it were me and I went in that guy's shoes, I, I probably would have taken that lesson. So, you know, uh, but, but, you know, and it's honest with you, Vinny, I didn't uh, think you hardly ever practiced for the lesson. I thought you were just coming in and winging it because I knew you could, because the material was not beyond you. It was right in your breadbasket. That was what was unusual. You know, there are there were other guys. Kenwood is a good example. Denard of a guy that had a very strong, you know, rhythmic thing. So there were a few yeah, guys around absolutely. that were doing that. Yeah, Ken I don't would, even want to just talk about you and me. So yeah, absolutely. Kenwood was, down. and we used to to practice together. You know, we were on this. I think we were on the same dorm floor. Kenwood and I used to hang out and and you know, just play on a pad or whatever. And and uh, a lot of us did that. I mean, there were a lot of people at that time in school during those years. It was. Man, it was pretty amazing when I think about it. Steve Smith was there. Remember, we, we there was a small period of time there that we took lessons together with you. And John Robinson was there, and Kenwood was there, and Mike Stern yeah, was. That was that was the group. Yeah, that was the group. You guys had a separate lesson, I think, in addition to your regular lesson, or maybe two of these groupy things. Yeah, where one group would be one day about something, and the other. One would be about something else. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be stickings. One day it might be polyrhythms. And uh, so I got more time with you. That yeah. was the whole reason I did it, you know. But uh, it was, yeah, those guys, it was, they were interesting people to work. I remember Steve Smith once. I don't know who he said it to, but he said, yeah, you come out of Gary's lessons and you have a headache. <laughs> and that's probably right for a lot of people uh, that's funny but it's funny but but it's true because that was no yeah. that was no easy stuff and yeah. you know i mean i'm seeing this for the first time and so so you had then after that compiled it into a system and which was brilliant and so you know I mean, but but there was a lot of stuff happening at that time. I remember we used to listen to, you know, Tower of Power and Garibaldi, and um, you know, all this stuff was new then. And 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 you know, and the first time I had heard about reggae was from you. I remember, and just a lot of stuff. And 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 then towards the end of my time there, you know, the last bit of lessons that we had together, we we would just. I remember walking in there, and you just put Tony on the turntable and we yeah. just sit there and listen to miles and, yeah. uh, you know, it just, you know, the, you covered the gamut of like, okay, this is what we're going to do today. And you're in, you know, and, and it was teaching me about concept and how important concept was. And, and, um, you know, I remember saying to you, yeah, I want to come back, uh, be a composition major and continue that. But I ran out of money and you said, Man, just move to New York. Go go to New York. Get out of here. So, you know, I tried and I ended up going to LA, but but um but that the the stuff was just so valuable to me. And so so when you I'm I'm not sure what how did that whole concept of linear drumming become birthed to you? How what 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 is it that was there some sort of spark that said Look, this is, you know what I mean, as opposed to harmonic playing, so to speak. Like, what what was it that that inspired you to sort of? What came yeah. to you first? I, I can tell you because it's it's a very direct line, but it connects into the, you know, the other two things of my my system basically was about rhythms, about stickings, and the result of putting rhythms and stickings together. That was the biggest thing. When I came out of college, I had seen a lot of rhythm stuff. Magadini's book was out. 
there was another book called Rhythms of Contemporary Music. I remember I worked on There were a few other books out. And uh, I just saw that there was room for more stuff. And the thing I think that was different about my book was that it was basically pieces. It wasn't exercises. It was pieces. And they were... You had to have good dynamic control. You had to have very good switching between rhythms control. There were, it wasn't just about playing fucking rhythms. You know, it was about doing something with them. And so as I did that, the one thing that was bothering me with the sticking system was there was no bass drum. I hadn't gotten the bass drum in. I used the bass drum under the stickings as we all do. But I hadn't figured out any way to get it inside a sticking. And then I realized there was no way. Because if you're playing a three-note sticking and you stick a bass drum on the, in place of the second note, then you got a single and a double. And that's not the sticking. That doesn't give the sound of the sticking. It's something else. So I couldn't figure out any way to get the bass drum in. So then I said, okay, well... I'll just use single strokes, two through eight groupings, and uh, the whole concept is about putting them together, mixing them. So if you take a three and a five, you can make a two-beat phrase. You can make a 16-measure phrase. You know that. Mm -hmm. And phrasing is not a lot of drummers' strong suit. So it was kind of a simple way to uh, show guys how you could take a simple phrase and expand it. Plus, at some point along there, I ran into tablas, and I started practicing tablas for a while. I studied them for about five years really hard. And then my teacher said, you know, if you ever really want to get this, you're going to have to move to India for some years. And I couldn't do it. I had a family. You know, I had a job here. And I didn't want to, you know just screw around with them. Like a lot of guys, when I was at Berkeley, I hired a tablet teacher, a good one. He's the guy I eventually studied with, to give classes. And so it was about, in the beginning, it was about 20 students. By a month and a half, it was seven students. By six months, it was two students, me and one of my friends. Because to them, it was just like a little something different. I saw one of these guys play tablas on a gig. He thought he knew something, you know, so he was playing just a couple of strokes and thinking like, oh, this is great, man. Where to me, I was saying, man, you're not giving the instrument any credit. You're treating it like a fucking drum, like a snare drum or something. Just hit it and it'll, you know, it'll work. So that's where the, the linear system came from. And then it was, which way do I want to go? Do you want to do it with all the various combinations, combinations between the stickings, which is kind of what I you know, chose because it gave the most phrasing possibilities. So that's where, you know, in the, in the first book, that I presented it, which is the time functioning book. I didn't know a lot of stuff. I really didn't. So it's very brief there. Then later you get a whole book out of it. And that's mm -hmm. much broader. Plus it brings in a different kind of thing than I used in the first book. Yeah. Well, well, the idea that, that you concentrated on phrasing and, and, and sort of, you know, somehow embedded the idea of phrasing into the drummer's head, maybe without them even knowing it, is pretty brilliant because uh I, I, I think I think that even now, even now it's it's I mean I dare I say it's an overlooked thing. And I say yeah. dare I say because you know, I, I listen and and I'm listening sometimes for for I don't know why I, I couldn't tell you what the reason is. I'm listening, and then I'll I'll start listening for phrases, 
And I think it's because on some level I'm realizing that I'm not hearing them. Yeah. And so then I start looking for something that I don't feel like I'm getting. Like, you know, you know, you get used to eating a certain meal and you go, what happened to the chili pepper? You know, it's, they didn't put it in there, you know, and, you know what I mean? So you start adding it and, and, um, and I'm thinking like, where, where did that go? What happened to phrasing? What happened to like, you would hear people back in the old, I don't know, bebop and post bop days that like it, they were, it was all about phrasing. And not only was it about phrasing, but it was actually about building phrases and into a, a composition or if they soloed, I mean, like, there's there's a great um, black and white video that I've seen. Um, you can see it on YouTube of Frankie Dunlop, man, wow, of underrated holy mackerel, yeah. in my opinion, playing and he's playing, and it's a slow tempo, and he's playing a solo on Blue Monk. It's like probably, it might be some of the most important 16 bars that I've ever heard because what he does, and he's doing it at a slow tempo, and then you hear the phrases and how he builds the phrases. It's a masterclass in phrasing and composing by building phrases and 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 slow too. Not, you know, up-tempo yeah. and yeah, I'm just going to fly here. Here I go, you know, watch me, watch this. No, try doing it at like, yeah, 50 or something. You know what I mean? Try try that on for size. And, yeah. you know, and then call me up and let me know how that goes. So, well, the thing is, is that I don't really hear any music out there. I'm, I don't listen that much to music because I hate almost everything that I hear. But most of the music, when I, you know, when I do listen to it, the phrases are... If anything, they're getting shorter. I hear whole tunes that are two-beat, repetitive phrases. They don't have any harmonic movement most of the time because it's not about that. It's a, you know, it's just about presenting the the, the words and the song. And they, so I don't hear, you know, if you you go back and look in the forties, there are hundreds of tunes with words. Or without words that have eight measure phrases and have larger forms like 32 measures you don't hear a 32 measure tune anymore no. you don't hear an eight measure tune anymore so i feel sorry for the guys because that gives you some room to maneuver instead of just playing your two beat thing over and over again yeah you yeah yeah space you could do more stuff not a lot of stuff but you know some stuff yeah i mean a tune from like fascinating rhythm you know any i mean we can name dozens of tunes from that era or from 
several spanning several decades, but I know exactly what you mean. It's crazy. It's like repetitive, a couple of things that, you know, and then maybe it gets built on. And the thing about it is, is that the protocol and the rules have changed where, whereby some things have been eliminated that I think are vital, a harmonic language and melodic language, um, you know, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and forget about the rhythm stuff. You know, it's, I mean, that's, that's a can of worms that I'm not even going to open here, but just, 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 you know, just, just the song forms. And I can identify people that have taken these forms, these reduced forms and done pretty cool things with them, but that doesn't justify reducing the form to me. And, 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 and because I can also, you know, cite dozens of other that have taken that kind of new reduced form and it's just garbage, you know? So, and, and really most of it that I think gets pumped down the mainstream is, is just homogenized sort of garbage. And not to mention that it that that you know what it's dressed in is pretty vile and that if you're going to normalize that kind of stuff it i don't think it bodes well for society and i don't think that you know people should say well you know that's just we're products of our society in order to belch that garbage out if you're going to be a role model as a musician don't don't give me that you know don't tell me hey i'm a product of my society therefore baloney you know so so you know like it's just and and meanwhile good art is clamoring to be heard and at the same time it's almost like the same old song really but at the same time there's so much talent out there more than ever probably and you know the level keeps getting raised yet at the same time there's so much mindless pap that's just being propagated to the masses. It's just, it's just almost a hilarious paradox, you know? So, but, but, you know, if we talk about this stuff and it gets to people, Hey, great. You know, yeah, it, it you needs know, to be heard. Because, uh, because of my affiliation with Mick Goodrick, one of the greatest guitar players that I ever heard wow. and the opportunity to play with. Mm. I did so many duos. I did Mick and John Abercrombie. I did Mick and Wolfgang Neuspiel. I did Wolfgang Neuspiel and another guy. In other words, there I heard all of these different guitar players. Top of the line. They did none of them played the same. They all had their own sound, their own style, their way of their own way of phrasing. You know, it was. I've in the last six months or so, I've been going back through all my old stuff, old recordings of gigs and stuff. And one of the things I realized was how little I was paying attention to what was going on. I don't know what I was thinking about. I really don't. Because now when when I listen and I listen to what the soloists are doing, that's not what I was hearing. I don't know what I was hearing, but it wasn't that. Really? I, and I don't really, I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know mm-hmm. what, what the answer is. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the uh, one of the puzzles... Really? So, so in retrospect, you're wondering what you were thinking because you didn't think that you were listening well enough. Is that, what am I getting here? No. It was on a different level. It was in a different place. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, I think, I'm not saying that I wasn't interacting. Of course I was interacting. I was pretty much an aggressive drummer in a small group. So I would get in there and mix it up with them all the time. I did not lay back. I did mm-hmm. not just play time. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, just my style. Yeah. And so when I listened to 
like the guitar players going back to them and how they phrased. And it wasn't exactly the way that I was phrasing, but I did incorporate a lot of things that I heard them doing first, like where they would put their cadences. Because when you move your cadences around, as you know, on top of the form, so you don't cadence on one at the end of the eight measure phrase, you cadence on two of the third measure. And what that does is it loops the time. So you're seeing like the canvas has the same form all the time, but every time you go back and draw something over it, it comes out differently. It's never <laughs> the same. Profoundly said. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand now. Um, Tell me, tell me um, about playing with Pat Metheny and Jocko together. We only played one or two gigs. Yeah? I thought it was more than that. No. And Jocko actually, I think he stayed at my house. Yeah, because he was broke back then. Mm -hmm. And he went in. To Berkeley. I don't know if you were there when this was happening. I was. In fact, that's the first time I saw Jocko. He just busted into one of our lessons. Yeah, just barged right in. <laughs> I mean, but he did that in in other, you know, with other teachers and stuff. He'd just go in and <laughs> start taking over. It was funny. It was Yeah, it, was, it, was, it definitely was funny. Yeah. But he had a very unique sense of musical time mm -hmm. it's very obvious you know and it wasn't just the rhythms but it was the notes the pitches the articulation the phrasing it had a whole lot of things to do but players like that really always inspired me mm -hmm. pat i had already been working with he had a little I forget if it was a quartet or a quintet. We played a few things, but Jocko wasn't around that much. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't read. Oh, I remember it was, a lot of it was with a bass player named Barry Smith. I don't know if you ever played with him. No. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, so that, that group was very short lived. Mm -hmm. So it didn't okay. have a big effect. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that. I just remembered that when I was studying with you, that you were you were playing around town. Uh, I think you were playing at the Zircon, I think, with those guys, something. Zircon, uh, probably 1369. Yeah, yeah, those clubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I thought there was a lot more of that going on. So quickly, before I get into this next thing I want to ask you, uh, let's go back to this this idea of cadences again. In, in, in a group improvisational context, when you talk about that and resolving over the, the bar or several bars, are you, are you saying that you, you, you may be predicating that on what's happening collectively at the moment or that you may just decide to do that arbitrarily um, just because it feels right at the moment. Yes, it's more of the latter. Okay. But the thing that happens, this is not, you can't, if, you, if you're playing with a piano player that's going to pound out the and of four or one or something like that, you can do this, but it's just going to, you know, not work unless the other guys in the band understand what's going on. So, when I do that cadencing stuff, either other guys will pick up on it and do their own thing regarding that. They won't put it in the same place because they don't know where the place is going to be that I'm going to put it. You know, so you can have a band where guys are cadencing at different places, but then every now and then you'll all come together. It might take five choruses to do it. Right. That's the big time. And then, you know, that make you know, could, you could be, you could be said that that's part of the fun of it. Right. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, but, but 
But if they don't know what's going on, it's probably because they can't recognize your cadences because they're not they're not seeing how you're leading up to it using phrases to elongate the cadence or put it wherever you want to put it. Is that a fair assessment? Well, where I let me give you some examples. You know, okay. like Jimmy Cobb. Yeah. Great, great drummer. Where did he cadence? On the four of one of the measure after the downbeat. That was his main cadence. Sometimes <laughs> he would do it on the four of the next measure, too. Okay. Wow. So I heard that and I said, well, geez, man. Okay. That's kind of cool. So I started picking it up because I was hearing other guys do that kind of stuff. Right. Wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that I dreamed up on my own, but it seemed like a really good idea to move it around to make the form a little bit more elastic. Sure. You can't do this on a rock. Sorry. You, you just can't. Mm -hmm. We're talking about something in jazz. You can do a lot in Latin. You can do some, although that's also very beat oriented, a lot of it. So you mm -hmm. have to be careful not to get in the way of that. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. That that was, thank you. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, that Jimmy Cobb example was a big light bulb that is easy for many to grasp on, yeah. on, on that level. So, so, <laughs> so Gary, I got to ask you this. Do you, how do you feel about the idea of, what linear drumming meant to you when you conceived of it um, and what it's become now. That's just, just yeah. I know it's yeah. a hot button and yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot. No, no, no. I, I didn't even realize what it had become because I never listened to that kind of music until a couple of guys said, Hey, you know what these guys are playing? Mm -hmm. They're just playing linear phrases really fast you know, over some stupid beat. So uh, I, I really wasn't aware of that. I saw it originally as um, a soloing device. Okay. So you saw it, you're saying you originally saw it as a soloing device? Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, if you're trading fours or yeah. something, it's a way to play phrases. Right. And that was, you know, the, so the two things, you know, kind of connected. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I also remember you illustrating how just doing it inside of grooves as well, like halftime yeah. shuffles and, you know, footing the hi-hat and breaking up the sticking so that you could play these linear grooves. So as a soloing device, it was meant to be able to sort of uh, bring 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 about phrases. So so okay, but but you know, I mean, I was on the ground floor of this with you because you you sort of we were we were probably some of the first people that were exposed to this stuff, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that that whole that time period at Berkeley, you know, me and. Steve and Ken wouldn't, uh, we were, and so some of us kind of took it and ran with it a bit and, you know, maybe, you know, have to share the burden of that guilt, but, you know, a monster has been created. Yes. But, but at the same time, you know, I just wonder if, if it unlocked a key to enable people 
to sort of orchestrate freely around the kit, seeing that it makes it easy to play certain phrases that sound hip because of the stickings that they're able to do and kind of unlocked a door, or if it's something that's kind of been diluted into some homogenized yeah. thing or yeah. Yeah. maybe a little bit of both. I don't know. Well, it's you know, it's really true. I mean, the when you talk about using a linear phrase to play time, you're not going to be playing the notes flat. You're going to be putting in accents or maybe open hi-hats or 30-second notes. There's all kinds of little modifiers that you can do, you know, to enhance it. So it's not always going to be the same. It's not a beat. It's a feel. And I think that's the big difference. There's a linear feel. Mm, wow. Light bulb number two. Okay. Yeah, that's that's huge. That's huge. And it's not just a semantic difference. It's it's an actual difference. It's a yes. conceptual difference that makes a difference in reality, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's yeah. And and if you think of it that way, then that's the way it yeah. You're th you're on the right track. You're on the right path. Um, it is a feel. It's not a beat. It's a feel. Yeah, I mean, you can make beats out of, of linear, right? But that's you can make beats out of anything. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. not, it's not really its main purpose. Yeah. Although, in a certain style of music, it's good. I mean, you're not going to play jazz time with stickings. I'm not going to at least, and I'm not going to play it with linear either. I mean, you could fake a version of linear inside jazz time, but it would really be very, very limited. It would be way too noty. You don't want to play that many notes when you're playing jazz time, like on the snare drum or the other drums. You know, there's got to be some space in there. Mm -hmm. So linear wouldn't really be good for that. So it has some uses, but not others. Mm -hmm. But yes, the bastardization, using it to play incredibly fast notes around the drums, you know, an endless. I, I, I really, I don't know why um, people get into those things. I had a friend over today because my studio here, I used to have a couple of drum sets and stuff, but I've given most of my equipment away because I don't use it anymore. There was an electronic drum set here that I bought for my grandkids many years ago. Mm -hmm. And one took it for a while and gave up. And the next one took it for a while and gave up. And it's just been sitting in the corner. So I finally decided to try it. I always hated electronic drums. I was dead against them. But I'm almost 80 years old. And believe me, setting up an electronic drum set is a lot easier than setting up a real drum set. So I don't have to get out my stands and do all that stuff. It's very self-contained. I can carry it around. And I'm not interested in doing anything but actually just using... I felt I was losing certain control in my body that came from drumming, that the, the kinds of moves and things that you do, they develop certain aspects of your physical body. No question about it. So I just gave up and then I was, I could just feel something was slipping away. So even though I hate to play on electronic drums, I'm playing on them now just so I can physically sit there and move my feet and play broken time and, you know, move around a little bit. It feels pretty good right now. Doesn't sound great, but feels. Oh, good. come on. Well, well, no, but that's good. They, they, they definitely will help. It's, yeah. it's, it's helping you in some way, and that, and that's, yeah. and that's important. And, and yeah. for me, I mean, yeah, I years ago, you know, twenty years ago, I, I just thought I'm not going to play these things. I hated the way they felt. I didn't like the way the mesh heads felt then, and it just, I didn't think that they had arrived. And then suddenly. A few years ago, I, you know, I got invited 
And so I went and I checked these things out and I went, holy cow, big difference. And then I was talking to the people at Roland and I said, what did you guys do? You know, and they were telling me and um, they just, they really got it down now to the point where, yeah. yeah. And they sound really good and you could record discrete tracks with them and, and yeah, you know, I mean, put headphones on and, and, um, if I was recording something, um, you know, there could be a, somebody out the window with a lawnmower and it's not going to interrupt me, you know, uh, you know, I, 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 who cares, you know, the dog can bark all he wants, you know, yeah. and, you know, and, 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 and I can get something out of it. So I, I hear you on that. I think, I think now it's, but you know, again, there's, you know, the acoustic drums, have an unparalleled kind of feel and, and requirement and a skill set that, you know, and it's very immediate and very primal and beautiful. And it's just, I think now we have an adjunct, a good yeah. adjunct that's. Uh, yeah, I can, I can play them without hating them. Yeah. Yeah. They're viable. They're, they're doing something for me. They're allowing me to do something that I want to do that I can't do with a real drum set anymore. So it's, you know, it's, working out kinda. exactly yeah that's beautiful that's fantastic I, I don't it's not a fancy set it's i think it's a very basic set the sounds are pretty limited the tracks are some of them are just downright stupid <laughs> i mean stupid stupid sounds and uh i don't get it at all but you know i'm old so. <laughs> don't, no, don't say that no, no, no! I'm, I'm there sorry. There are I'm, two I'm... jazz, jazz uh, <laughs> channels. One is it just says jazz, but it's like big band jazz drum sound. Yeah. And one says bebop, and that sounds a little bit more like a smaller set, which is what I wanted. Right. So, and it's not great, but it's good enough. I'm going to go over there for 20 minutes a day. It's a big deal. Yeah. Man. Right. Right. Of course. And you can laugh at it, like the fact that it sounds like something on one of those organs. You know, like. You know, or you, you put the track on and it's just, it's funny. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> that's really, really funny. So, so. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you um, just, just one more, one more thing, Gary. Um, we, I mean, we could go nuts here, <clears throat> but I know, you don't want to bogart all your time, but um how do you feel about um, the fact that there's an instant glut of information available constantly and rehashed over and over and over online that basically hands people information on a, on a platter, which causes them to absorb information, you know, at an exponentially faster rate, or it's just more available to them and how how that is sort of becoming the way that people are learning now versus, you know, I mean, when I was in school, it was like, well, we had record players and tape machines. And then we'd go out and see people live and, and try to take it in and see how much we absorbed, you know, or remember. We and, had sessions. Well, yeah, we had sessions, but but ways to to learn and, and sort of integrate, I think, you know, back then, <clears throat> I, I just, oh, I think that, that I had to use my imagination a lot more, you know, whatever I could grasp by hearing things that influenced me at the time, once it was over, it was over. And then I would try to figure out what it was that I just heard versus being able to hear it constantly over and over and over now, and then copy it. And, you know, maybe never achieving my own voice just oh i can do that now i learned it and oh it's available to me and yeah well, you know it's, it reminds me of the matrix it's like okay kung fu you know okay now acrobatics okay classical violin you know it's just you know what i mean it sounds like a great idea and idyllic in in a lot of ways but i just I just wonder if it allows for the, the sort of gradual development of the person. I think, you, I think you already know the answer is no, man. It doesn't. 
and there's nothing you can or I can do about it. That's just, you know, the way it is. I mean, think about me. I was born, I was talking with uh, Soph and Houghton about this. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, we were born at the perfect time for getting into jazz because we were coming up in the 50s, early 60s. -hmm. We were all going to school. Miles is coming out. Mm -hmm. You know, Elvin is coming out. Train is Mm -hmm. coming out. All these great bands and clubs all over the place that had jazz groups. You go to New York, you could go to five different clubs in one night Mm -hmm. and see all kinds of players, you know. It was really a visceral kind of musical experience and the one thing that you notice that i notice is every drummer played different i remember seeing joe chambers and he and he didn't have a rack all he had was a snare drum and a and i said wow that's kind of weird and then i thought about it for a minute and i said no it's not it's fine exactly wants these sounds he doesn't need that other sound you know yeah I mean, the last set that I wound up playing yeah. was that I used on the last couple of t- clinics was uh, a bass drum, a snare drum, a tambourine that I got from Frank's Drum Shop in Chicago made by a guy called Clarence, who used to be in the back room. I don't know if you were ever there, but mm-hmm. he made these great tambourines. Wow. And I used it on the set. I got more compliments on that thing. I did uh, one PAS festival. There were about 500 people in the audience. And after I played, the first question that came out, what do you have on the right side of your set? It sounds great, but we can't see any drums. Oh, that's wow. You know, yeah. And if it was mic'd right, it just... It just had a very, because it's a calfskin head, you know, all that kind of shit. Yeah. So that that was my set. Hmm. No times, just the tambourine, two cymbals, no waiting. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, see, that's, that's amazing, man. I mean, you saw a lot of that back then, too. People yeah. are doing that now, too, where they're, you know, changing up uh, setups and this, that, and the other thing. And, yeah, I see. I see that that happening now as well, but um, but but nothing. It it just is. And um, so what's what's next for you? If are you you're retired, do you ever think about an encore in any way? No, absolutely not in any way, shape, <laughs> or form. No books, no articles, <laughs> no nothing. I'm done. I had, I said what I had to say. When I look back at my materials, the main thing to me is not the rhythms. It's the stickings with the rhythms. That combination. And because it leads to everything. It leads to time fields. It leads to soloing. It leads to all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And you can incorporate all the other musical issues like, like uh, dynamics and so forth. Right. The linear thing, as you know now, was just a way of involving the bass drum primarily when you're playing on the set. And that could go either way for time fields or solo. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the main thing that I brought to the party. Well, it's 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 an amazing thing. I mean, innovative. And so you've you've left your legacy. So yeah, bravo. You know, bravo, Gary. I mean, you've you've left us all with this rich legacy that has informed and taught so many of us that has then gone into the drumming vocabulary of the entire drumming community and seeped into music. And there you go. You know. Yeah, I think I think some of it has become part of the overall picture of oh, playing unquestionably unquestionably more than just a little i see i don't really know because i hear it oh i would know i mean i hear it i hear it and whether or not i'm hearing an adulterated version of it is different because we spoke about phrases and all that a little earlier but it made its way in and definitely made a huge dent so you know 
we just you just have to see where it evolves. You you put it out there and you just let it go and we'll see what it's going to become, I suppose, right? Yeah, I don't know what the next what the next things are going to be that are going to be happening in drummers uh in drumming because I'm so far removed from and I don't hear any music that allows for any really interesting stuff that be happening on the drums. The drums is just one of the workhorses in most tunes. They just, you know, they're the steel workers. They just lay out the stuff <laughs> and other people drive over it, you know? <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> well, <laughs> with that, I'm just, I'm going to, um, to close out this now and and um and say thank you Gary um just thank you for doing this and for coming on the show and um and tell everybody thank you so much for listening and um uh, thanks Gary and stay tuned for the next episode of Breakfast with Vinny. Mm-hmm.